And the headline for Daniel chapter 4 is this, a severe mercy. That's a phrase that I believe is taken from an old Puritan's writing, um, 1500s, 1600s. It's a phrase that I know C.S. Lewis quoted, and there's a famous book that was written by someone who knew C.S. Lewis, so this is a late 20th century author, knew C.S. Lewis, wrote about their lives and about their correspondence with C.S. Lewis, and their book is called Severe Mercy. If you look up Severe Mercy, you'll find that person's book everywhere, but the quote is much older than that. From gospel preachers in England in the, in the great days of the 15th, 1600s, terrible days too. A severe mercy. Subheading, the humbling and conversion of Nebuchadnezzar. Amen. Let's pray. We open the scriptures again, Lord, and acknowledge that they are your inspired word. Yep. Amen. They are without error and they have authority yes. to deliver your truth to us and to demand a response from us. So we open our minds and our hearts again today to receive your word. Holy Spirit, come and be our teacher and our leader. Lead us into the truth. Provoke us to live and work with the truth to the changing of our thought, thinking and our living. We ask you for the honour of Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So Daniel 3 ended with Nebuchadnezzar being so moved by the Lord's rescue of uh, the three... Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the fiery furnace, that he declared these things. Let's just remember what Nebuchadnezzar said. Daniel 3, 26 to 29. Nebuchadnezzar went near the mouth of the burning furnace, spoke, saying, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God. There's a conundrum. He just called them by these pagan Babylonish names, but they're servants of the Most High God. Come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came from the midst of the fire. Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his messenger, his angel, and delivered his servants who trusted him. And they have frustrated the king's word, broken his law and got away with it, and yielded their bodies that they should not serve nor worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree that any people, nation, or language which speaks anything amiss against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, shall be cut in pieces. And the houses shall be made an ash heap or dung heap, because there is no other God who can deliver like this. So he makes blasphemy against Yahweh a capital offense. Did you get that? Anyone who blasphemes their God, you know, the God of Israel, is going to die. I mean, something's happened in him, but he's not quite there yet. Daniel 4 is now a section of the book which is an official account. It's Nebuchadnezzar's own words recorded by a scribe, perhaps by Daniel, and entered into the books of the Babylonian Empire. In this chapter, Nebuchadnezzar very openly confesses a number of things. Firstly, the prophetic warning that he'd been given. Secondly, his continued pride. Then, his judgment from God, God disciplining him, through the loss of his reason. Then his restoration, and then he confesses his faith and submission to the Lord, to Yahweh. Fillmore, I've 
quoted in the last few weeks, says, Nebuchadnezzar, the destroyer of Jerusalem, wrote a chapter of the Bible. If God can save Daniel's boss, he can save yours. Some of you find that hard to believe. We'll, we'll, see, we'll talk about it later. These events take place some years after the golden image and the fiery furnace. Some say that these events, in fact, came towards the end of Nebuchadnezzar's life and that he died only a year after these things were all fulfilled. So years on from Daniel 1 and 2, the king has another dream. Let's come to Daniel 4. Nebuchadnezzar, the king, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I thought it good to declare the signs and wonders that the Most High God has worked for me. I want you to notice his language as we go along. How great are his signs. How mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. And his dominion is from generation to generation. Now, Nebuchadnezzar has told us the end before the beginning here. The narrative ends with him declaring the greatest of the Most High, whose kingdom is without end, but it starts with him being full of contentment and self-satisfaction. Daniel 4 verse 4. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at rest in my house and flourishing. That's a word that means you know, to grow like a plant or a tree. That's interesting because that's when we get to what the prophetic warning is. He's like flourishing like a, like a lovely tree in his palace. And I saw a dream which made me afraid. And the thoughts of my bed and the visions of my head troubled me. Troubled there's a bit weak. It, the word there really means terrified. Anybody know what it's like to be terrified? It's like all your blood just flows out your feet, doesn't it? <gasps> you, you, you're shocked, you're cold, you're... He was horrified, terrified. Therefore I issued a decree to bring in all the wise men of Babylon before me, that they, may, they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians and the astrologers and the Chaldeans and the soothsayers came in. I told them the dream. He didn't play that trick of, you've got to tell me the dream. He told them the dream. And they, but they did not make known to me its interpretation. But at last... Daniel came before me. His name is Belteshazzar. Now notice that. He calls him Daniel, but then refers to, well, he's previously been known as, but now I know him as. Now I call him Daniel. According to the name of my God, in him is the spirit of the holy God. And I told him the dream before him. I told the dream before him, saying, Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy God is in you and no secret troubles you. Explain to me the visions of my dream that I've seen and its interpretation. Verse 10. These were the visions of my head while on my bed. I was looking and behold a tree in the midst of the earth and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong. Its height reached to the heavens. It could be seen to the ends of all the earth. Its leaves were lovely, its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade underneath it. The birds of the heaven dwelt in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. I saw in the visions of my head while on my bed, and there was a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven. And he cried aloud and said thus, Chop down the tree and cut off its branches. Strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts get out from under it and the birds from its branches. Nevertheless, leave the stump and roots in the ground, but bound with a band of iron and bronze. 
And in the tender grass of the field, let it be wet with the dew of heaven. Let him, the, the language has slipped here, let him graze with the beasts of the grass of the earth, on the grass of the earth. Let his heart be changed from that of a man. Let him be given the heart of a beast and let seven times, we don't know whether those are months or years, but it would have to be at least months. Let seven times pass over him. This decision is by the decree of the watchers and the sentence by the word of the holy ones in order that the living may know that the most high rules in the kingdom of men, gives it to whomever he will and sets over it the lowest of men. This dream, Nebuchadnezzar is talking to Daniel still, this dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, have seen, now you, Belteshazzar, because that's how he knew him still then, declare its interpretation, since all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation, but you're able for the spirit of the holy God is in you. So Daniel had heard all of that report from the king. He understands it immediately, but he hesitates to reply. Verse 19. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was astonished for a time, and his thoughts troubled him. He's struggling to find the words. He's struggling to know where to start, or how to begin to speak to his king. So the king spoke and said, Belteshazzar, don't let the dream or interpretation trouble or terrify you. So Belteshazzar Daniel answered and said, My lord, may the dream concern those who hate you and its interpretation concern your enemies. The dream, the tree that you saw, which grew and became strong, whose height reached to the heavens and which could be seen by all the earth, whose leaves were lovely, its fruit abundant, in which was food for all, under which the beasts of the field dwelt, and in whose branches the birds of the heaven had their home. It's you, O king, who have grown and become strong. For your greatness has grown and reaches to the heavens and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And inasmuch as the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave its stump and roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze and the tender grass of the field. Let it be wet with the dew of heaven. Let him graze with the beasts of the field till seven times pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king. And this is the decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord, the King. They shall drive you from among men. Your dwelling will be with the beasts of the field, and they shall make you eat grass like oxen. They shall wet you with the dew of heaven, and seven times shall pass over you, till you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men, and gives it to whomever he wishes. And inasmuch as they gave the command to leave the stump and roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be assured to you after you come to know that heaven reigns, rules. Therefore, O king, let my advice be acceptable to you. Break off your sins, become righteous, and break off your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor. Perhaps there may be a lengthening of your prosperity. Daniel interprets the dream. It's a prophetic warning to the king, but like many prophetic warnings, it does not declare an inevitable future, but an outcome that may be avoided through turning to the Lord. Repentance, faith, obedience. Prophecy is not fatalistic, and it's rarely unconditional. 
It calls us to respond to the Lord with faith and prayer and obedience. So Daniel advises the king to change his ways and so perhaps avert God's judgment. That's the way prophecy works, folk. It is not like scripture and even a lot of scripture when God spoke to people, when God people gave people promises. They were not unconditional. There was an implied covenantal duty to respond to him and be obedient to him and to walk with him. Then Phil Moore makes a comment, Daniel grew in influence in Babylon because he was brave enough to speak the truth to the king. Flatterers never prosper. Let me pause here to give you some historical background. After the fall of Jerusalem to the Babylonians in 586 BC, and the golden image may have been a monument celebrating that victory, Nebuchadnezzar's time of warfare had pretty much come to an end. And he had time to focus on rebuilding the city of Babylon. And in about 16 years, by 570 BC, the city had been built, rebuilt to be a place of monumental architecture and beauty, rivers and and canals running through it, public gardens. Many of the streets were avenues lined with trees. It was a wonder of the world, one of the ten greatest cities ever on planet Earth, including the famous hanging gardens of Babylon, which they found some remains of. And by the way, you can see remains and, and, and antiqu antiquities, antiquities of uh, Babylon in the British Museum in Hobart. Go to the British Museum, ask your way to the, to the Babylon section. Uh, you can see it there as well. It's very, very good. Nebuchadnezzar's account now continues. So you've got an image of this beautiful city that he's, he's had rebuilt. Rivers have been channeled to run through it. Extraordinary. Verse 28. All this came upon Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12, 12 months, that's 12 months after the prophetic warning, he was walking about the royal palace of Babylon. The king spoke, saying, Is not this great Babylon that I have built for a royal dwelling by my mighty power and for the honor of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, a voice fell from heaven. I won't do a voice for this one. King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and they shall drive you from men. And your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. They will make you eat grass like oxen. Seven times shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he chooses. And that very hour, the word was fulfilled concerning Nebuchadnezzar. Let me just add here, he lost his reason. Became completely deranged. He was driven from men, and he ate grass like oxen. His body was wet with the dew of heaven, till his hair had grown like eagle's feathers, and his nails like bird's claws. That's why we, we say that's not a few days, or even a few weeks. That was at least seven months for that description to fit. And maybe, maybe seven years. In the moment that Nebuchadnezzar had looked over the city and had praised himself, the Lord spoke to him. He'd had a year of probation, a year of judgment held back. But now the time was over and the prophetic warning was fulfilled. In the very next moments, Nebuchadnezzar lost his reason. 
He was so wild, they drove him from the city. And he lived in the open countryside as a mad madman for seven... I put years in the notes, but it may have been months. He lived a subhuman existence. Pride, feel more again. Pride is feeling good. You're a self-made man or woman. Humility is praising God. You're a creature and he is your creator. Verse 34. And at the end of the time, however long it was, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my understanding returned to me. Let's just stop there a moment. So in that moment, he's no longer deranged. He's no longer suffering from this mental illness that had been suddenly come upon him and that God had put upon him. He lifts his eyes and his reason returns and he remembers where he was those months or years before. He knows who he is. He realizes where he is and he knows that all the prophecy has been fulfilled in him. Now, if you or I were in that position, what would we do? What would we say? Here is what Nebuchadnezzar did. Verse 34 still. And I blessed the Most High. Did you catch that? I blessed the Most High and praised him who, and honoured him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? That is quite a confession. And at the same time, my reason returned to me and for the glory of my kingdom. In other words, he's saying, not for my sake, but for theirs. My honor and splendor were returned to me. My counselors and nobles resorted to me and I was restored to my kingdom. An excellent was, majesty was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, this is the last verse, but it's the last thing I've got to say. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, all of whose works are truth and all of his ways are justice. And those who walk in pride, he's able to put down. The first thing Nebuchadnezzar did when he got back his reason was he turned to the Lord and confessed his name Amen. and his nature Amen. and said what had been done to him was just. Amen. God had acted in, give you the phrase again, a severe mercy. I've called this sermon that title. It's through the tough mercy of God. It was the tough mercy of God that humbled Nebuchadnezzar and brought him to honor the Most High. And I'm going to talk a bit this morning some more about this severe mercy. There are, I know, Christians, and including leaders and preachers, who do not want to accept that God's mercy could act in such a way. But I believe the Bible shows this to be so, and I think if you understand the cross, you have to accept that it is so. Let me give you a human example of severe mercy. Think of a surgeon. He must open up your living flesh to repair damage or to remove what is harmful. God forbid that he's enjoying cutting you open. We need to get rid of him from his job if he does. 
It's a necessary pain to bring good. Something that must be gone through for the greater good. To prevent your greater harm. This is not fanciful. This is the way the Lord speaks about himself. Let me give you a couple of scriptures. Deuteronomy 32. Now see that I, even I, am he. There is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. Nor is there any who can deliver from my hand. And Isaiah 6, I've got it open in front of me. Isaiah 6 verse 1. It's a prayer of repentance. Come, let us return to the Lord. For he has torn, but he will heal us. He has stricken, but he will bind us up. This is how the Lord reveals himself to us. God, the I am, is whom he says he is. But some people mistake the goodness of God for niceness. You know? Being terribly middle class and not saying boo to a goose. You know? When a child's misbehaving, oh, please don't do that, darling. They quote Romans 2 verse 4, the goodness of God leads you to repentance out of context. If you read the context, they're making it to say what it's not quite saying. Claiming that God wouldn't consider doing anything that was in any way unkind or that caused us any distress or trouble or pain. But at later on in the same book, Romans 11, Romans 2, the goodness of God leads you to repentance, out of, out of context quotation. Romans 11 verse 22 Paul says, therefore consider the goodness and severity of God. On those who fell from faith, fell in disobedience, severity. But toward you, goodness, if you continue in his goodness, otherwise you also will be cut off. When Paul writes about God's goodness, he's not talking about God's niceness. God is not a weak God and Father. He's very strong. And in his dealings with us, it is sometimes true, as some parents have said, if you will not listen, you must feel. Anybody heard that one? That has been true in me, in my life. I wouldn't listen, so I had to feel. And I'm not talking about my parents, I'm talking about God, my Father. Turn at my reproof, he says in Proverbs. Because if you don't, you're going to have to feel something that causes you to turn. God's goodness to his children is wide enough and wise enough to allow hardship, even affliction, to turn us back to him when we need adjustment, correction, training. God is good. And as our Father, he works for our highest good. But even humanly speaking, an uncorrected child is an unloved child. And I'm trying to avoid going into Hebrews 12 today. Let me just recommend to you, read Hebrews 12, Hebrews 12, so I don't have to preach it to you this morning, because that would take too long to, to add in. But even there, Paul goes further than that. He says, it's not, doesn't just talk about an unloved child, this is an illegitimate child. A child that doesn't receive correction is one that the parent has no concern for. They do not own them. They take no responsibility for them. But God takes responsibility for us and owns us and loves us and will not leave us uncorrected. He acts to prevent our harming ourselves and others further. His law is good. His mercy is sometimes severe when need be. Other examples of severe mercy, and I haven't put them all up in here because I realized this morning I, I did these 
things yesterday. Let me go back before Jonah. Joseph. Joseph is one of the characters in the Bible that we talk about, the severe mercy of God. I mean, sold into slavery, accused of adultery, thrown into prison. He's there probably about 14 years. He comes out in his 30s. Thrown in as a teenager, comes out about 30 or so. By the way, there are pictures of the career of Jesus there. Um, comes to authority in Egypt. And then he becomes, by this miracle of the working of God, so the things that happen there foreshadow Jesus. He becomes the saviour of his whole family. Joseph. But if you're looking for it to be nice and easy, does it? You know, being sold into slavery and, 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 doesn't really, doesn't really feel very nice, does it? But it was the fear and mercy of God. And he says his words. You intended it for my harm, but God intended it for good. That today there would be deliverance and food for the family. Joseph. Jonah. Jonah is told by God to go and preach the good news, the message to the, to the town of Nineveh, the city of Nineveh. That was the capital city of their enemies at that time, by the way. It's a bit like sort of, you know, in the Second World War, say, God's saying, go to Berlin and speak this. What? You know, I mean, he, that was his reaction. He went in the opposite direction, tried to get across towards Spain. He's in a, he's, the ship is in a storm. He confesses he, the storm's happening because of him, because he's running away from God. And so he says, throw him in the water. No, we can't do that. Throw him in the water. Now we can't say, oh, okay, throw you in the water. Great fish swallows him, and he's in the fish for the same time that Jesus is in the grave, three days, three nights, yeah? Again, God painting pictures in real people's lives to tell us about Jesus. He's kind of spewed up onto a shore and then he, he walks up into Nineveh and delivers the message. A severe mercy. I've seen gospel sermon, preacher's sermon, sorry, not gospel, preacher's sermon, Jonah, a severe mercy, using the same phrase. But in the New Testament, we've got Saul, Paul. You can read his personal account in Acts 9 and Luke's account, sorry, Luke's account in Acts 9, Paul's testimony given to two different people, two different occasions, chapter 22 and 26. He's the chief persecutor of the Christians, appointed by the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council. Go ahead, chuck him in prison, kill him, we don't care. Go on, off you go. Yes! He's vengeance for the name of the, of the Lord, for Yahweh. I mean, he, he hates Christians. And as he's on his way to Jericho to kill Christians, or at least imprison them, light shines, bright light shines. He's thrown from his horse. He loses his sight. He's blinded. And, 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 and a voice speaks to him. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He asks a dumb question. Who are you, Lord? He knows perfectly well who it is. It's the Lord, but the Lord answers back. I am not, notice this, I'm not Yahweh. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. He's blind, he fasts, he goes without food and water for three days, and then a humble servant of Christ called Ananias goes to him, lays his hands on him so he might receive his sight, receive the Holy Spirit, and then he's baptized in water. Ooh, I'm not sure God's supposed to do that. He did it. Eat it up. Get used to it. Sorry to be being so tough. but He threw a man from his horse and blinded him. Amen. Hallelujah. And he became the greatest apostle, I would say, and a huge theologian. And so much of the New Testament is Paul, and it's so amazing. 
God rescued that man from his devilish mission and turned him into the, not far from being the least of the apostles. But you can see severe mercy in the instructions that God gives us in the New Testament and the things that happen in the New Testament. Exclusion from fellowship, Matthew 18. You've, you've spoken to someone, you've tried to help them, tried to correct them, tried to bring them back from the brink and, 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 and stop this destructive way of life. And they don't listen to you, you take someone else to talk with them, and they won't listen to you. So the church as a whole talks to them and appeals to them and they won't listen to the church. Then you, you treat them like an outsider. So that, but you continue to pray that by God's mercy they will be led to repentance. And while they're out there, God may bring some hardship. God may bring some severe mercy. But it's so that they are won back. So that they are restored. And I have seen it happen, friends. I've seen it happen. God, by his severe mercy, brings someone right the way back from being way out there. Hallelujah. I've seen it. But I've seen those who complained when we were doing such a thing. Oh, that's not nice. You shouldn't do that. That was God's redemptive process. God's plan of rescue for that person. But more severe. Twice in Scripture you read from Paul, handing over such a one to Satan for the destruction of their flesh, that their spirit, their soul may be saved. If we will not be corrected, if we will not be brought back from our past, God may have to take us out of it. There's a scripture in Corinthians that says, is it Corinthians or Hebrews? Yeah. Corinthians, I think. That God corrects us and chastises us in life so we will not be condemned with the world. Yeah. And I, I want to say to you very, very clearly, he may do that even to the extent of taking you out of this life so you're not condemned with the world. My friends, I believe Annas is some fire who are Christians that will see them in heaven. But God said, enough. You can't do that. And they, he took their lives. And again, in my experience, I, I can give you accounts of seeing what I was sure was that happening. Severe mercy. It's not judgment in the sense of condemnation. God is not sending that person to hell, but he's saying, I can't let you live like this anymore. It stops here. You've all gone very, 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 very quiet. <laughs> so Christians may become sick and even die so they don't continue in their rebellion and wickedness. And, and I and others close to me have heard literally deathbed confessions where they've asked forgiveness and asked for restoration because they know why they're dying. What a thing. You're a Christian. You know why you're dying and you accept it as God's justice. And yet you, you want to get everything straight before your last breath. What an extraordinary moment that is to be with somebody when they make that kind of last moment restoration and repentance. Okay, I'm not going to read to you those scriptures about delivering to Satan, but you can look them up. Outside of the scripture, let me mention to you just one person from Christian history about the severe mercy of God, because there's a song you know when we get to it in a moment, you'll recognize it. John Newton wrote Amazing Grace. We know that song, don't we? Okay. He was a seaman, a sailor, 
He was then a slave in Africa to an African queen. When he escaped from that, he then became a slave trader captain for several years. And it was while he was in that trade that God began to convict his conscience. It is said that he used to go and hide his head in a bucket because he would cry so loudly with tears of repentance and couldn't do anything about it. He didn't know how to find freedom and forgiveness. And he'd hide from the crew to pray because the, the, the sounds would escape from him as he prayed. But he found God's grace. And after his conversion, he later became a leading abolitionist, along with William Wilberforce and others. You can look up this history online. You can watch a, a, a film about him. You can find probably on the internet as well. But he experienced for a quite a time deep conviction of his sin before he experienced the grace of God. That's why he wrote these lyrics. Let me read them to you. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. T'was grace that taught my heart to fear. He looks back on those months of agonizing within his conscience. Grace taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. Hebrews 12 reminds us that our Father doesn't just dote over, over us, oh, aren't they lovely, but he's raising us and training us as sons, and we will know at times both his refining as well as his refreshing. <laughs> Let me come to this subject, Nehemiah Pride. I looked for a little picture to put up there on Pride yesterday. Guess what I found? Yeah, yeah. Three or four or five pages of it. Yeah, I'll make one myself. All right. It's avoiding certain colors even. Oh, my goodness, what have we got to? Pride. Pride's a dangerous subject. substance, I said last week. There are, of course, many scriptures on the subject of pride versus humility. Let me give you a short run from Proverbs and two from the New Testament. In the mouth of two, three witnesses, everything words established. So quickly, you'll see it in the notes, three from Proverbs. When pride comes, then comes shame. But with the humble is wisdom. By pride comes nothing but strife. But with the well-advised is wisdom. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. A man's pride will bring him low. But the humble in spirit will retain honor. And then twice in the New Testament, two apostolic writers quote this phrase. James 4 verse 6. But he gives more grace, therefore he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. 1 Peter 5. Peter writes, likewise, you younger people, submit yourself to your elders. Yes, all of you, be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility for God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. Now, you can't actually find an Old Testament scripture that exactly says that. But it may either have been a saying of the rabbis or, listen, it may have been one of something that Jesus said but didn't get into the Gospels. There's an example in one epistle and in Acts of two sayings of Jesus that aren't actually recorded by the Gospel writers. God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. I'm going to just give you a... I wrote these as a list. I'm going to read it as a list. And I could add to it. I might add to it even what I'm saying. It. 
In the Anglican prayer book, there's a place in the, in the Anglican prayer book where they have a commination against sin and sinners. They just rebuke sin. I'm going to rebuke pride this morning. All right? I wrote these down. Pride was the first, the primal sin. Pride was in Satan's heart and he rebelled against the Most High. Pride was then sown into the first humans. And for us, the first sin was pride. And they rebelled against the Lord. Pride will keep you from God, from his mercy, goodness and help. Pride will keep you from others and lock you within your own inner world. Pride will not confess and forsake sin. Pride will not admit and seek help. Pride will keep you from your freed from the freedom that is yours in Christ, trapped in repeated cycles of behavior. Pride chooses to suffer rather than ask for help that is available. Pride would rather go hungry than reach out for the food that is on offer. Pride despises others. Pride is deceitful and will often pose as shyness or false humility. Pride says, I'm not like others, I'm special. So pride leads then to two extremes, either boasting or desperate depression. Pride will not fear and honor God. God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Matthew Poole wrote a commentary on the Bible back in the late 1600s, says, they that fear not God shall be frightened by him. Nebuchadnezzar was given a year after the Lord's prophetic warning, but he didn't repent and he had to learn by hard experience instead. Some say that after his mind was restored, he only lived another year. And maybe so, in which case his conversion was not quite deathbed, but the Lord mercifully brought, mercifully brought him to faith before that, the end of his life. God's mercy is sometimes severe because God must act with urgency. We too are instructed to act with urgency in rescuing our brothers and sisters when they are, de are seriously astray. James 22, it says, And on some have compassion, making a distinction, but others save with fear. You're terrified, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. Urgent, desperate action to rescue your friend, your brother, your sister. By the way, that image of a brand pulled from the burning is from Zechariah 3 verse 2. God had to humble Nebuchadnezzar because he did not humble himself. And that principle holds true still today. Those who humble themselves, God lifts up. But those who will not humble themselves will be humbled, will be made low, will stumble, will fall, will have adversity, will have trouble, because we did not humble ourselves. But think about this as well, this conversion. Nebuchadnezzar. There are some scholars who say he wasn't, but I think he was, with a few others as well. Since God can save a Nebuchadnezzar, a Saul, a John Newton, or even me, guess what? He can save anybody, anytime. So our responsibility is to pray, to ask the Lord to save. 
to save our family, to save our friends. If God saved Nebuchadnezzar, God can save the most unlikely people if we'll pray for them and share the gospel. By his goodness, which may include at times a severe mercy, he can lead anyone to repentance and faith. So ask him and keep asking him to save by his mercy your family members, your friends, your work colleagues and even your boss. Just a verse to encourage you there. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor his ear heavy that it cannot hear. There's the two are connected, aren't they? The Lord's saving and our asking, our praying. I, you know I'm reformed. I'm, I'm what's called Calvinistic, but I, didn't, I do not hold with the kind of hyper Calvinism that says we don't need to share the gospel or we don't need to pray for anybody because God will save them anyway. No, God works through means. God works with us and through us. And he's called us to share the gospel and to pray earnestly for the salvation of, the, of those that are close to us and dear to us and, or, or even are a trouble to us like the boss maybe. Pray for them, for the mercy of God to fall upon them. Let's look again at the confessions that Daniel made through this chapter. The begin and end is. Verse 2. I, Nebuchadnezzar, thought it would be good to declare the signs and wonders that the Most High God has worked for me. He's saying that having come through the seven times. How great are his signs. How mighty are his wonders. His kingdom He's an everlasting kingdom. This is the king who built a gold image because he was, he, was, he was fighting back against the image that said your kingdom's going to go to someone else and the kingdom of God's going to demolish all of them. No, my kingdom will last forever. His kingdom, he's now saying it, is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion is from generation to generation. Chapter 4. The end of chapter 4. At the end of the time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven. My understanding returned to me and I blessed the Most High, and praised and honoured him who lives forever. He understood what had happened to him and why it had happened to him, and he blessed God. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing, including the kings and the emperors. He does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. He does what is good, what is right, what is just. Out of his eternal wisdom. And no one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? Final verse. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honour the kingdom of heaven, all of whose works are truth and all of whose ways are justice. And those who walk in pride, he is able to put down. Nebuchadnezzar comes to confess who the Lord is. He's come to a pretty good grasp of who the Lord is. In fact, I can't really fault his theology. God is the great God, the almighty God, the sovereign God. I wish all Christians could think about God as being as great as Nebuchadnezzar's got him pictured there. Our God is the most high God, King of heaven, the sovereign Lord. This God is our God and this God is our Father. And he still operates with these principles. 
Those who walk in pride, he will put down. But those who humble themselves under his hand, he will exalt. Those who do not humble themselves will be humbled. Those who boast in themselves rather than in him will find in time how empty their boasting has been. They that fear not God shall be frightened by him. We get to choose. We get to choose. Uh, The way of pride or the way of humility. One leads inevitably to downfall. It's prophesied, it's declared, it's scripture. You follow the way of pride, you're heading for the tumble, the fall, the hurt. Inevitably, God's word cannot be broken. But if we reject pride and choose humility, we're following our master. Philippians 2, of course, famously says we are to imitate him who laid aside his privileges. He became a servant and then became a man and then he became the cross. And by the way, the last example, which I've saved until now because I want to talk about it now rather than earlier, a severe mercy. It was the severe mercy of God that put Christ on the cross to bear our sin and die our death. That, my friends, also was the severe mercy of God. God doing all that was just, all that was right, at huge cost to himself, so that we might be redeemed. Our sins may be atoned. That also was the severe mercy of God. And it's interesting the people who don't want to think about God being anything but nice don't like the cross either. They don't like to think about the atonement and God actually putting Christ to death for our sins. They try to make that into gospel into something else. Perhaps for some of us here today, we may be in a time when we're experiencing something of the severe mercy of God. Well, respond to him, please. Talk back to him. Say, how long, Lord? What, what is this? And what can I do? How, how do you want me to change? And how do you want me to respond to you? There may be a time coming for some of us, and I've lived through a few, and I may get more yet. But if we encounter such a time, may we please, like Nebuchadnezzar, come through that time and bless and thank and praise the Lord for his goodness to us. Here is wisdom. Isaiah 6 verse 1, let me say this and hope I don't cry saying it. Hosea 6 verse 1, come. Let us return to the Lord. Notice we don't blame anybody else. We don't even blame the devil here. We say this. He has torn, but he will heal us. He has stricken, but he will bind us up. When we return to the Lord. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we sing our songs, Lord, that you're a good, good Father. But that goodness is so wide, so deep, that it reaches us at times in ways we can barely talk about, we can barely understand. Times of your severe mercy to bring us back around to your heart. To see you face to face and stop hiding from you.
Some of us have experienced that, Lord. Today, if we didn't at the time, we say, with Nebuchadnezzar, we bless and praise and extol your name. For you have done what is right. And for our greater good. You've kept us from worse harm by your correction. Oh, Father, hallowed be your name. Honoured be your name. We trace through Scripture and we see particularly in the cross how your justice, your righteousness and yet your pity and compassion towards us are met together. They're joined in that huge act of Christ yielding up his life for us through suffering. And we receive, Lord, the revelation that it takes that to get us saved. And there are moments in our lives when it takes some pressure brought upon us to keep us straight too. And we acknowledge it and we bless you that you are a good father. We take a moment today to acknowledge our pride before you. And we want to say we are no better than others. We deserve no more than others. In fact, we deserve nothing but hell. But you have been gracious to us. You have been good to us. All that we are, all that we have, is by your kindness. We take a moment, Lord, to humble ourselves under your great hand. We can be so boastful about what we can do and what we can achieve, but Lord, we could achieve nothing except you give us the skills and the strength, the health, the brain, the mind. We humble ourselves. We acknowledge that you are God and we are not. That you are wise and we are not. And that you know better what is good than we can make the judgment for ourselves. We submit ourselves to you, Father, as your children, into the hands of a loving Father. We submit ourselves again today. And maybe you've never prayed anything like that in your life because you're still not yet a Christian. And, uh, you may be close, you may be very close. Nebuchadnezzar, it took him years to get closer and a bit closer until in this chapter, I believe, he was converted and he died a believing man. I pray that you might not wait that long. <laughs> Why don't you try this morning again to offer a prayer to the Lord Jesus and ask him to become your saviour and your master. Yield yourself into his hands. Do it now. Take a moment, say a prayer. Identify yourself as someone who needs to begin to really know him and follow him. And offer yourself to him with all your heart. Because he'll, he will respond to you. He'll answer you. Your life will begin to change. Excuse me, I'm going to blow my nose. Thank you, Father. You hear every prayer from every heart right now. Those who are your dear children and know you are responding to you in some way. 
those who are wanting to become your children through faith in Jesus, hear their prayer. Right now I ask, and may Jesus be honoured in that from today. Amen.